Hi guys. I see a lot of you already here and talking. Wow, we've got eight people on already. Excellent, excellent. I really like doing this thing uh, now that I know how to do it where I can turn it on early and let you guys talk and then even join in myself every now and then. Uh, but it's good to see you all here. Uh, before we start on what we're going to be talking about tonight, I wanted to show you something that I meant to show you guys uh, during the last um, podcast or video or whatever you want to call it, class, when we were talking about the transfiguration and how that was what was supposed to be the focal point around which Christianity revolved, not the crucifixion. And that the whole reason the crucifixion was focused on was for political reasons, basically to turn the Jews and the Christians against each other and take their focus off of the government and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we were talking about how the point of magic or one of the points of magic, like the higher levels of magic, is to create the solar body. And what the solar body does is allows consciousness to exist after the death of the physical body. Uh, you know, in, like, for example, in the Bible, it talks about the first death and the second death and how the first death is the death of the physical body. And the second death is the death of the uh, energetic body, like the astral or the etheric body when it begins to unravel. And once you create the solar body, you have created a energetic vehicle that consciousness can use to um, continue after death. I got thrown off for a second. Someone says, is anyone else hearing an echo? Is this echoing, guys? Nick, Nick, you, um, that's an amazing comment that you just brought up because that's exactly why I'm bringing it up. Nick says, it's, it is amazing. I've been focusing on the Christ the Krishna and the Buddha all developing the light body, then Damien discusses this. Well, that's exactly what uh, I wanted to show you guys that I forgot to show you last time, that this is not just a Western concept. Uh, you know, this is not just something that exists in Western traditions. You see it also in Eastern traditions. That's what this is. Again, this is portraying the solar body, the crystallized aura is what that is. And you see it all through, grab this lady here. You see them all through Eastern art, just like in Western iconography, the same thing. They're all portraying the exact same thing. Um, so let me think. Oh, the next thing I wanted to talk to you guys about is uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, you know, to me, New York is the only home I've ever known since I've been out of prison. Uh, this is the only place I've ever felt like completely myself, to be honest. Uh, it's and it feels like this place is, is part of me. Um, but lately, I've been thinking about leaving. This will not be a quick departure. I will be here for at least another year. 
but what I would like to do is go down south, go back to where I originally came from, and find enough land where uh, I can have a retreat center. You know, basically do a school of magic, a brick and mortar school of magic, somewhere way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, but still accessible to people. So um, on the 16th of April, I am going to be flying down to uh, Mississippi. I am looking at uh, a place that has 80 acres of land way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and there are already several houses built on, on this land. Uh, and I could also construct several more. Uh, but this is the very first very first uh, step in doing this. You know, maybe this won't be the place. Uh, I will know that after I get down there and look at it. Um, but uh, right now, this is the first step. And, you know, I, I know I can't just stay here forever. And I honestly don't see uh, anything good coming to cities in the U.S. for a very, very long time to come. Um, you know, I think we are going to see probably just all kinds of unpleasant things like, you know, essentially uh, unparalleled government surveillance, you know, uh, all, all kinds of, of things that, um, that I don't think are favorable or conducive uh, to a happy life. Uh, so I will keep you guys posted. Uh, like I said, it won't be a, a, a sudden thing. This is a very, very huge undertaking. I mean, I'm talking about things like if uh, with 80 acres of land, you know, you could do things like put in bike trails and hiking trails and uh, you could put in a, a huge auditorium and uh, a cafeteria, you know, for people who want to come and do like a, a week-long retreats um, and not be bothered. Uh, so I wanted to tell you guys about that just so that you can put energy into it. You know, like I said, we're talking about something that's at least a year off in the future, uh, but we will see how that goes. What we are talking about tonight is the Ouroboros. And I've got a lot of pictures I'm gonna be showing you guys again, just like last time. Also, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Bible scriptures I'm going to be reading to you guys to explain what a lot of this means. You know, if you were here early, you may have saw that I was typing some of it out already. Uh, but, You know, let me, I'm going to start trying to think which one to start with, which is the first one to show you. First off, I guess I'll just say that the Ouroboros is not, and, and Ouroboros, uh, what that is, is a serpent biting its own tail. 
Sometimes it's portrayed as a dragon. Sometimes it's portrayed as a snake. Uh, but it's something in the serpent family biting its own tail. This is not, once again, this is not something that you just find in Christianity. You know, for example, in Christianity, it's called Leviathan. Uh, but also Crowley talked about this. Uh, Crowley called it Karanzen. So did uh, John Dee and Edward Kelly. You know, Karanzen, Crowley said, was uh, the demon that exists within the abyss. And we're going to get to what that means. But this is not just something in Thelema, and it's not just something in Christianity. The first things I want to show you is how this exists all the way back in uh, also Egyptian iconography. This is Harpocrates, the god of silence. He's holding his finger up to his mouth, doing like that. He's inside the Ouroboros. Harpocrates, they said that he, uh, one second, I'm gonna cover up the comments so that I don't get distracted and forget what I'm talking about and I'll uncover them in a few minutes and see what you guys are asking. Uh, but Harpocrates in uh, ancient Egypt was said to be sitting on a lotus and surrounded by a blue aura. So what you're looking at here is his aura, his aura, but it's also the Ouroboros. You see it also in this, if you can see it well, this is an Egyptian scarab, but you see around the scarab is the serpent biting its own tail. Some traditions consider this to be the uh, absolute worst symbol uh, that you could bring up. You know, this is this is like the the worst of the worst is what it represents. And we're going to go into why that is exactly. Uh, but let me see what else I should show you first. Um, think of it this way. You know, one of the things that I wrote in the description of this video is the Ouroboros karma and transcending the reincarnation process. Well, the Ouroboros is what causes the reincarnation process, this endless cycle of you incarnating into this world. If you do not transcend this system while you are alive, you cannot do it while you are dead. And that is also a huge part of what we're talking about when we're talking about completing the great work. We are talking about breaking through this or transcending this Ouroboros so that you don't automatically incarnate into this world over and over. You know, we hear a lot about karma and pretty much like every other thing that has to do with magic, with higher states of consciousness with transcendence, you know, fulfilling the purpose that we came here to do, as with all of those things, just like karma, most people have no idea what those things mean. You know, they, they've been reduced to like pop culture cliches and phrases. And, and now when people think of karma, they think of things like if you be good, then good things happen to you. And if you do bad, then bad things happen to you. And are those, are those statements true? Yeah, on some level they are, but karma is not the be all and the end all. 
the Buddha never, ever taught that you can transcend this realm, that you can move on to the next stage, that you can complete the great work or reach enlightenment. The Buddha never said that you can reach enlightenment through performing acts that give you good karma. Just like Jesus said that you will never find the kingdom of heaven through acts, you know, through doing things. Uh, both the Buddha and Christ taught that you cannot reach enlightenment, you cannot reach the kingdom of heaven through acting, through creating what people think of as good karma. So, but does that mean that good karma is absolutely pointless or that there's no validity to it? No, it doesn't mean that. Most people are going to take many, many lifetimes to do this work. And in those lifetimes, they want to accumulate as much good karma as possible so that they uh, experience favorable circumstances and situations whenever they incarnate. However, you get to the point where when you're working, when you're focusing on karma, since it will not allow you to transcend this realm, then, or it will not allow you to reach enlightenment, it will not allow you to build the solar body, any of those things. You reach a point where the only thing you are doing by trying to accumulate more and more and more good karma is almost like constantly trying to have the high score on a video game. You're not going anywhere else. You're not doing anything else. You're not breaking out of this endless repetitious cycle. The only thing you're doing is trying to accumulate good karma so that every time you cycle back through, you're experiencing positive or pleasant circumstances or situations. So that's the only thing karma really does for you. You know, the man who taught me, I didn't understand what this meant in the beginning. He told me one time, he said, there are those who have transcended karma. And, you know, in the beginning, I didn't understand a lot of what this stuff meant. You know, he, he was talking about how to some of the people who do this work, they don't even consider karma a factor in completing this work, in reaching enlightenment, building the solar body, completing the great work, any of those things. Karma is not even a factor to them in this stuff. And I couldn't figure out, you know, why is that? What's, how is that the case? But it's the case because what they are trying to do is transcend this system. You know, they're not trying to come back over and over and over and just have good fortune or, you know, pleasant circumstances. They are trying to transcend this system so, so that they can do other things. What those other things are is whatever your will is, essentially. You know, once you transcend the system, you can create your own system. You can create your own world and dwell within it the same way that God did with this one. Uh, you can also 
come back into this one whenever, wherever, and however you choose to do so. You are no longer at the uh, mercy of karma or circumstance or anything else. Um, you will have, this is what they mean when they're talking about one of the reasons for doing magic is to break the chains which bind us to the stars. That's what you have done when you have transcended the Ouroboros, when you have transcended the Leviathan, when you have defeated Karanzen, whatever you want to call it. So I'm going to show you some, some pictures. And I'm also, I'm not just going to tell you about this stuff because here's the thing about just telling people things. You'll find a lot of philosophers, I call them philosophers, not magicians, because a magician is someone who does magic. A magician is, is someone who acts. A magician is not someone who just reads a bunch of books. A magician is not someone who just debates philosophies or tries to convince people of things. You know, you'll find things, uh, you know, for example, and, and I don't trash talk other people's work. But take, for example, someone like Rudolf Steiner, who I was talking to a friend about him just yesterday. How Rudolf Steiner gave all these people all of these, I guess you might want to call them prophecies, bits of information, theories, all of this stuff but very, very few of any techniques or practices. Well, if all you're doing is giving people philosophies or, or teachings or concepts or uh, all of this kind of stuff, and you're not giving them a way to discover these things for themselves, then all you're doing is asking them to trade one set of dogma for another dogma. You're asking them to trade what they were taught by religion or what they were taught by their parents or what they were taught by society for something that you're telling them. And that is not what I am here to do at all. You know, it's like the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. Don't believe anything that I tell you unless you can try it for yourself and see whether it's true or not. So I'm going to wrap this up at the end by telling you, and a lot of you that have been with me for a while know we've talked about this before, but we have a lot of new people. So I'm going to give them the next step of the process to work towards this. But you'll see here, for example, in this diagram, and you that have been with me for a while, you've seen this before. So this is a, a cosmology diagram. Um, this one is a Hebrew cosmology diagram. Well, you see in the center, and, and like when I was in school, they used to tell us that ancient people believed that this was the way the universe was, that the earth was here in the center and everything else is revolving around the universe. Uh, initiates, people who had been exposed to things like the ability to read and write and had this information passed down to them, none of them ever thought that. Yes, you may have had some common people that believe that, you know, the sun revolved around the earth, just like you've got people right now that take this stuff so literally that they're literally waiting on Jesus to come floating out of the clouds and suck them up into space. Or that believe, you know, that a talking snake led to the fall of mankind. You know, you're always going to have 
like the uninitiated who take things literally like that. Um, and that's just the level of understanding that they're at. You know, everybody advances beyond that in their own timing. The same way with this. The earth in the center, that represents your physical body. All of these other levels of that are that correspond to planets, like here you've got the moon, and then you've got Venus, and then you've got Mercury, and then you've got the sun, and it goes all the way up until you reach to Saturn. What we call, you know, some of these things are not technically planets, like the sun and the moon. Those are not technically planets, but they're referred to in magic as the seven classical planets, the planetary energies. Those are levels or layers of your aura. That's what this is. It's a map of you. This is a map of your soul, a map of your aura. Well, then that would mean you see here Leviathan. Leviathan comes in between. And this is also why I tell people that I have found this map, the cosmology map, to be far more beneficial to me in my own practice than um, the tree of life. The tree of life is also a map. Part of the reason you see here you have the Ouroboros or Leviathan. You see they even call him Leviathan. In between Saturn and this ring, which has the zodiacal uh, symbols on it. Well, that's the abyss. Between Saturn, the planetary energies, and the zodiacal energies is the abyss. Leviathan is in you. So when we're talking about, and I'm going to be telling you a crazy ass story in a minute, but when we're talking about ascension, when, when I say, for example, you're ascending up through these levels of reality until you hit such and such, that's just a way of speaking to describe a process that I don't have any other way of describing other than saying you're going up, you're ascending. You're raising your vibration, however you want to call it. Leviathan is something, it is something that is within your aura. It's not something out there somewhere. It's something that is within you. It's like a program. Like if you are a computer, Leviathan or Karanzan is the program that causes you to reincarnate. It also prevents you from reaching these higher levels of reality, activating further levels of your soul or your aura until you master it, until you have transcended it. So I, I don't know. There's a lot of stories about where this came from, why this is there, how this happened. And to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't know who or what put it in you. If, you know, there are those like in Gnosticism that say it was done deliberately, that it was done deliberately to imprison people in this level of reality. Maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen anyone doing it. I haven't come in contact with anything like that. Uh, maybe it's something that just develops within us naturally the same way your heart and your lungs and your liver develop in your physical body as you form in your mother's womb and then are born into the world and keep growing. I don't know. All I know is it is there. It is possible to come in contact with it 
and it is possible to see how this works for yourself. But you see, one thing I want to bring up is the seven planets. There's the earth, and that's when you're working with the lesser pentagram ritual. You're working with the energies of earth, air, fire, and water. From there, you advance to the next level of practice, which is working with the hexagrams, and that's when you're activating these levels. Well, there's seven of them, right? This is a photo of an engraving from a tombstone of an initiate. You see the Ouroboros, and you see the stars. Remember, when we do magic, we are attempting to break the chains which bind us to the stars. It's not talking about those stars up there. It's talking about these programs within us, you know, these things that we call planetary energies that I told you aren't necessarily planetary energies like the sun and the moon, blah, blah, blah. Those are also called stars in the Bible. Well, you see there's seven of them here, seven stars, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those are the seven levels or layers of your aura inside that, that, final layer of the Ouroboros before you cross the abyss. You'll see it also, and this is something you can look up, you know, in tons of places. This is one of my favorite images. This is an old alchemy image that shows the same thing. The levels of your aura, your soul, surrounded by the Ouroboros with the dove descending. What the dove represents is that energy of enlightenment that allows you, the dove is enlightenment. It is the transcension of the Ouroboros. So what you're seeing here, you see he's not biting his tail. It's broken by the, the dove. It's, it's, there's been a gap made in it, a broken spot so that you can get out. This is an old, uh, oh, oh, and again, just like the dove representing enlightenment and transcending the Ouroboros. Here, once again, same thing. The dove represents being able to transcend the system. This is an old uh, Greek uh, version of the Ouroboros. And I'm just showing you all these things because we're going to be talking about them in just a second when I read you these scriptures. Let me find. Um, I'm going to start with, with this one here. In one second to find these scriptures. So this is from a coat of arms from an initiate's family. This stuff, there are families who have passed this information. There are orders, there are lodges, there are groups. Sometimes this stuff is passed down through families. Well, this is a family coat of arms that shows the Ouroboros. And you see the words around it. It says, Victrix Fortunae Sapientia. What that means in Latin is wisdom is the conqueror of fortune. But wisdom, the word they translate as wisdom into English, also means skilled practice. So skilled practice is the conqueror of fortune. What is fortune? Fortune is another word for like destiny or fate. 
Skilled practice allows you to transcend your fate or your destiny or your, think of it as a lack of free will. Skilled practice is how you transcend the Ouroboros. And I don't know if I should tell you my story first or read some of these scriptures to you first. I think I'll start by telling you what I did. And some of you have probably heard some of this before. But if I tell you my own personal experiences first and then read to you the scriptures, it may help to put the scriptures in context and help you to understand more of this. So when you first start off learning magic, you're doing you're doing rituals to invoke or banish the elements, earth, air, fire, water. And you do it in the form of angels. Raphael, the archangel of the east, Gabriel, the archangel of the west, Mikael, the archangel of the south, and Uriel, the archangel of the north. Those are the four that you start off with. Those are the, they represent the energies within the physical body. The next step of the process, and this goes back to, remember a while back, not too long ago, maybe a week or so, when I was talking about a scripture in the Bible that says, uh, put on the armor of light. The way you put on the armor of light is by invoking angels. But after you get used to doing those four angels, the way you get to the next step of the process. Now, there are uh, there are many ways of doing this. There's not one way that is written in stone that you have to do. What you do have to do is work with the planetary energies. But there's a bunch of different forms you can do it in. So, for example, the hexagram rituals. When you start invoking, you know, using the invoking hexagram of Yasad, and then you're doing the invoking hexagram of Venus and then the invoking hexagram of Mercury, like the way you're given them traditionally in, in auras, I mean, in orders or lodges. Uh, that's one way of working with those planetary energies. The other way, the way that I favor, because it was the way that I have had by far the most success with, is you can still continue to use the pentagrams because you're going to use them again later anyway, only in a higher form when you transfer from using the lesser invoking pentagram to the supreme invoking pentagram. But you can use the pentagram rituals and just start adding the planetary energies or the way I did it is by using the in, the archangels that correspond to the spheres on the tree of life because those spheres also embody planetary energies. Uh, you start invoking those. When you start doing that, you will know something is happening to you. You won't know exactly what it is, but you'll know you feel more confident. You feel more at peace. You don't get shaken by anything going on in the world. Uh, outside circumstances and situations don't mean nearly as much to you. They're not going to rattle you anymore. Um, but the way you do that, I'll go into that in just a second because that's that's what I'll end you with. I'll give you that as the practice so that you can do to get you towards the next step of doing this work of transcending the Ouroboros. Uh, when I started doing that, next I started, after that, the next stage is invoking the 
angels or the energies of the astrological signs, the 12 signs of the zodiac. Uh, I did it with the angels, but you can also do it with pentagrams. You can use pentagrams and you'll find this in the Golden Dawn book, but I'm just going to tell you how to do it using angels because it was what I did. Uh, like I said, there's more than one way to go about it. Um, whenever I started to do that, and this is also why I find this map more beneficial than the tree of life is because on the tree of life, they put the abyss below Banah. Banah is the black sphere that embodies Saturn's energy. They put the abyss below Saturn. And part of the reason they do that is because you would have to put it at a weird, wonky-ass angle that wouldn't make any sense otherwise. So they put it below Saturn. I did not experience it below Saturn. And it is not below Saturn on this map. It is above Saturn. So you see the, the sphere that has the signs of the zodiac in it? That corresponds to Hachma on the Tree of Life. So you've got the... Ouroboros or Leviathan or the abyss between Banah and Hakma. That was where I experienced that, experienced it at in my own practice. The way you reach the next level is by invoking it. So say, for example, if you're at the level of Jupiter, the way you get from Jupiter to Saturn is by invoking Saturn. So when I was at the inner, when I was at the level of Saturn, I began invoking the archangels that corresponded to the zodiac, which are in Hakma. Well, it pulls you up. It's like when you're invoking it, you're pulling yourself towards that level. And see, this is what I mean about the terminology. You're not going anywhere. These things are inside you, but it feels like you're going somewhere. Those are the only words you will be able to use to articulate it. It feels like you are ascending towards something. Well, after I had been doing that for a while, probably about a month, every day for a month, for several hours a day, I started to see a light. This light, you know, I'm using words to describe it that aren't exactly right, but these are the only words that I have. These are the only words that I can use to come close to, to getting it into a way that you can visualize what I'm saying. I started to see a light above me while I was doing magic, and I, I could feel that I was moving towards it a little more every day. The more magic I was doing, the more of these archangels I was invoking, the more I'm moving towards that light. I say moving towards, but it also feels more like you're getting closer to it. Uh, but at the same time, like I said earlier, this is something inside you. Well, I would have sworn, everything in me would have sworn that what I was seeing was the Empyrean, the mind of God. You know, it's, it's like when you hear all those psychics say, telling ghosts, go towards the light, go into the light. You think, well, that must be what you're supposed to do. And I started striving with everything I had to reach that light. And it took me about a month, maybe two. It's hard to remember because this was a while ago. 
but it took me at least a month of no, I mean, I was doing hours and hours and hours of work every day trying to reach this light. And when I suddenly reached it, it was like getting slammed back here, back into your physical body. And at first you think, what was the, what's the point of that? I did all of that struggling, all of that rising, all of that trying to reach the light just to come back here. Well, that's because it's not the Empyrean that you're seeing, that light. It's not. It's not the mind of God. It's a trick. It's a cycle. Most people don't experience this until they die. You have to do this while you are alive to break this cycle. When you die, it's too late. When you die, you're not going to know what's happening and you're going to go into the light and you're going to come back here. Well, I'm going to read you some scriptures now. So Job 41 verses 1 through 34 is dedicated to describing the Leviathan, which is what they call the Ouroboros in the Bible, in detail. It says, Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? That's exactly what happens to you. When you see Leviathan, you are cast back down into the earth realm, into the material plane of existence. That's what happens. When you see it, you're cast back down here. Included in God's lengthy description of his indomitable creation is Leviathan's fire-breathing ability, his impenetrable scales, and his overall indomitability. In Job 41, in Psalm 104, God is praised for having made all things, including Leviathan. In Isaiah, he is called the torturous serpent who will be killed at the end of time. What that means, he is killed at the end of time. When you transcend him, you are out of the dimensions of time and space. You know, I've said this before, how there are those who are not really here in the same sense that most people are. This is because they their consciousness exists in a dimension that has transcended the limitations of time and space, which most people can't comprehend and which there is almost no way to articulate in human language. But whenever you reach that state, you have killed the Leviathan. You have destroyed the cycle that will make you keep incarnating back here over and over and over. The body of Leviathan, especially his eyes, possesses great illuminating power. This was the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, who in the course of a voyage in company with Rabbi Joshua, explained to the latter, when frightened by the sudden appearance of a brilliant light, that it probably proceeded from the eyes of Leviathan. He referred to his companion to the words of Job. By his niesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. That's what I saw. I, you, that's what you will see. You will see that light, that shining, 
That's what they're describing. They're calling it the eyes of Leviathan when you see that. In the Zohar, the Leviathan is a metaphor for enlightenment. The Zohar remarks that the legend of the righteous eating the skin of the Leviathan at the end of the days is not literal and merely a metaphor for enlightenment. What that means, eating the Leviathan, until you transcend it, it eats you. It swallows you. When you go into the light, you go into its mouth and you get spit out its other end back into this realm. It is eating you over and over and over. When you finally transcend it, you have devoured it. It can no longer, you, that will no longer happen to you. You will not incarnate in this realm with, with no control over it anymore. You will have eaten the Leviathan. Once you eat the Leviathan, you have passed into the dimensions that are beyond the levels of time and space. And that's what they're calling enlightenment. You will know what, what the physical realm really is, what heaven really is, what they're not, all of that sort of stuff. In Gnosticism, the Leviathan appears as an Ouroboros, separating the divine realm from humanity by enveloping or permeating the material world. Further, according to this Gnostic sect, after death, a soul must pass through the seven spheres of the Archons. If the soul does not succeed, it will be swallowed by a dragon-shaped Archon who holds the world captive and returns the soul into an animal body. Animal body just means flesh. Could be human, could be something else. You know, doesn't matter really. Whatever it is, it means you incarnate back into this, this realm. But it says you pass through the seven spheres. Again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those are the seven spheres of the archons. Those are the seven levels of your own soul, your own aura. Whenever you incarnate into the physical realm, each of these levels shapes or forms in descending order. It will, the last thing to form will be your physical body. You coming into this level of reality starts well before your physical body begins to form. You will start to descend down lower and lower or denser and denser vibrational frequencies until eventually the physical body begins to form. Whenever you die, this happens in reverse. The physical body dies and then the next level starts to unravel and then the next level starts to unravel. And then the next level starts to unravel until you reach back the Ouroboros or Leviathan. And then the whole process starts again. This level right here, this is all you're doing continually. You're coming down, you're going up, coming down, going up. That's what the incarnation process is. You have to get into these outer levels in order to disintegrate that, in order to stop that. Now they're talking about archons and... Uh, archons are, you know, whenever they found the Nag Hammadi scriptures, if you guys are familiar with those, 
the non-commodity scriptures. Now, they used to say, for example, the book of Daniel and the prophecies in Daniel and how he describes the, the kingdoms in the world going from Babylon to Persia to ancient Greece to ancient Rome and then in the modern times. They used to say that there was no way that those were real, that there's no way that someone could have written about those things for centuries before they occurred the way they had in Daniel, that Daniel had to be a plagiarized, not a plagiarized book, but a fake book written later and tried to make it appear that it was written uh, to predict things in the future. That theory got blew all to hell whenever they discovered the Nag Hammadi scriptures in Egypt. In Egypt, one day, a boy got sent out by his family to look for something to burn because they needed to cook and stay warm at night. He starts going into these caves looking for wood, sticks, anything he can burn for his family to cook on. He finds these vases, these canisters filled with really old scriptures. These things had not been touched in a long, long time. These things had survived. You know how the, the Romans, the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Empire, how Emperor Constantine, how they tampered with these scriptures and shaped them to suit their purposes, promote their agendas, uh, which continues all the way into modern day times. You know, most people have no concept of what Christianity is, is even actually about. You know, they've turned Jesus into like a social justice warrior instead of actually what he was. These original scriptures in the Nag Hammadi, what they now call the Nag Hammadi Library, had never been touched, never been tampered with, never been altered in any way for centuries and centuries. Whenever they opened them up, the original books of Daniel were almost identical to the ones we still have in modern times, proving that, yes, they were written when they were said to have been written. They weren't written down the road, later down the road, by someone pretending to be predicting what was going to happen. They were real. Well, in the Nag Hammadi scriptures, they also talk a lot about something called archons. They say, you know, in that scripture where Jesus says, we fight not against power, we fight not against powers of the flesh, but against powers and principalities in the spiritual realm, that we're in a war with these things that we can't see that control this world. That's what the Gnostics called the Archons. A huge portion of the Nag Hammadi scriptures were about the Archons. I think something like one fifth of these things, you know, it's a pretty big chunk of them is about the Archons. Um, so that's what they're talking about here. The Gnostics believed that we are literally fighting against things that are attempting to control the destiny of humanity. Whether that's symbolic or whether it's literal is entirely up to you. Um, a Jewish rabbinic legend describes a great battle which will take place at the end of time. It says, and it's talking about also, they don't just mention Leviathan in the Bible. They mention another beast called Behemoth. 
and it says they will, and there's a, a, they're saying there's a battle between them at the end of time. They will interlock with one another and engage in combat. With his horns, the behemoth will gore with strength. The fish, Leviathan, will leap to meet him with his fins, with power. Their creator will approach them with the mighty sword and slay them both. Then, from the beautiful skin of the Leviathan, God will construct canopies to shelter the righteous, who will eat the meat of the behemoth and the Leviathan amid great joy and merriment. This is what it's describing, the behemoth and the Leviathan, locked together. This tree behind them, that's the tree of life. You see it's stuck in the middle of them there. And I told you a while ago, the tree of life is uh, a map of you, a map of your aura, a map of your soul, a map of your psyche, your consciousness, all of those things. Um, so, again, this is basically showing the same thing. The tree of life is those seven levels of your soul that come under the Leviathan, under Karanzen, whatever you want to call it. Let's see what you guys are talking about. Yeah, Brandy, that's exactly right. Perhaps the battle is within us. It absolutely is. But here's the thing. It's within us and it is outside of us. It's both, you know, as above, so below, as within, so without. The reason it's also outside of us is because uh, my brain just went blank. I'm sorry. I started reading comments. Um, so you know how we all have an individual ego? We also have collective egos. Uh, Eckhart Tolle calls them pain bodies. Um, and guys, I'm not reading the comments yet. Uh, I, I know some some of you are asking questions. Hold on to them for just a minute, because if I start reading them right now, I'm not going to be able to remember what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll look at them in just a minute. But the same way that we have individual egos, we also have collective egos. For example, countries have egos, you know, the United States or England or, you know, wherever the hell it is, Italy. France, all of these countries have collective egos, or if you want to think of it as a morphic field, which is made up of all the people within that body, like all the people in the United States contribute to the morphic field of the United States. Well, uh, genders have egos. Uh, races have egos. You can even create egos out of things like sports teams. You know, all the people who like are deeply personally invested in particular sports teams, you know, where they identify with it. You know, you'll hear people even talking about it like, you know, we play on Sunday this week. We play such and such. We play them, you know, like they're actually on the field. They're not on the field. They're sitting on the couch watching TV, but they're investing all of that emotional and mental energy into a construct, into an egregore, into an ego, if you want to call it that. So they are creating something very real 
which does have effects in the outside world. So it is inside of us, but it is also, yes, Evan says families too. Yes, families, same thing. When you're, and also, you know, this is what people are talking about when they're talking about like generational traumas, you know, like when you're talking about, uh, you know, for example, like black people going through slavery and all that, that's, that's part of what they're talking about. You know, you're talking about people who went through like a, like, even if it wasn't the people that are alive right now, it was still people that they're connected to and went through some horrendous thing or, or say like Jewish people going through the Holocaust, they went, you know, their, their collective consciousness went through something horrific, something incredibly devastating. So yes, it does still play a role in their lives to this day, in their psyche, in their emotions, all of that kind of stuff. So you know, there are things without and there are things within. Um, let me see one thing. Uh, Brandy says, no enemy within, no enemy without. That is true, but most people within this realm will never reach that stage because in order to reach that level of existence, you have to cross the abyss. You have to experience firsthand uh, that you are all sentient beings. You know, that's not a metaphor. You are the consciousness which is looking out through the eyes of every man, woman, and child on this planet. There is only one consciousness. It doesn't seem like it because we are experiencing this reality through all of these little individual perspectives, but there is really only one uh, consciousness, which is experiencing itself in this realm. Um, let me see. I'm not sure. Oh, oh, uh, Peter. Peter says, Peter Weir says, so is the Christian apocalypse symbolic? And I can't say this word, eschatological or both? It's both. It is symbolic it does represent things that happen outside in the world. But when you're reading, you know, we've talked about this before, like when you're reading the book of Revelation, if you don't have the key to understand what this stuff is saying, it's going to seem like a bunch of gibberish to you. You know, you're going to be reading about like, like scorpions, like the, what, what is it about how the scorpions were released from the pit and they had, they were able to sting people like, uh, not scorpions, I'm sorry, locusts. The plague of locusts is released from the pit and they have, they're able to sting people like scorpions and they have the faces of humans. You know, when you're reading that, you're like, what the hell is that? You know, and you do have people that believe that there are these literal plagues of locusts with these human faces going to come on the earth. What that actually represents, those are politicians. Remember, it says that all of these scorpions are wearing little crowns. You've got this plague of locusts wearing little crowns that are able to sting humanity and make them wish they were dead without killing them to make them miserable. That's representing politicians. The little crowns on their heads represent the authority given to them by the beast, which is the government. Their ability to sting humanity means basically their ability to inflict on us whatever the hell they want to inflict on us. Uh, and there's nothing, it does kill us, most of us, 
but there's nothing you can do about it, but, but suffer through it. So yes, it is definitely an internal process, 100% an internal process. But once again, it also has reflections outwards out there. It is also something very real happening in the world. And the reason it can predict things like that is because like it says in uh, Ephesians, is it Ephesians? Or no, Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. These people don't have any new tricks. They're doing the same crap they've always done ever since the days of Babylon, ever since the days of the Roman Empire, ever since the days of the Persian Empire. They've got a little bit more technology now. They can do it in slightly, you know, different ways. You know, for example, now they do it over the Internet instead of through the town crier or through the newspapers, or through the radio when the family used to gather around the radio to watch, to listen to the news reports. You know, they can do it in, in slightly different ways, but they're still doing the same old tricks. That's why they say a prophet is not someone who sees the future. A prophet is someone who understands the past. When you understand the past, you know there is nothing new under the sun. It's the same old crap they've always done. It's just ramping up. It's getting worse and worse and worse, you know, and, you know, things like even when you're talking about, uh, for example, you know, the thing that people always get called up on the mark of the beast. And I think that means, you know, when I was a kid, they used to show us these horrendous films, like these psychologically scarring films about like people running around with 666 stamped on their forehead. And that was the mark of the beast. And Everybody, you know, the few people who knew better were going to be trying to avoid the mark of the beast. Well, the beast is the government. What is a mark? A mark is something branding you. It's something showing ownership of you. The mark of the beast is not one particular thing. It's a bunch of things. It's your social security number. It's your birth certificate. It's your death certificate. And it's all the crap that comes in between. Like we're moving into a period of time now when you're going to have to get a new mark. Like the Internet up until now has been kind of like the Wild West. They are going to that's going to come more and more and more under surveillance. And you're going to have to uh, have this mark that identifies you even on there. Uh, so, you know, the mark of the beast isn't like one specific thing. It's a bunch of things that have been done. You know, like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. These people don't have any new tricks. They're just doing the same crap they've always done. So that was a long ass answer. Uh, but hopefully, yeah. Thank you, Alexis. She says you are on fire tonight. Let me see. Let me see what you guys are talking about. And then I'm going to give you the, the ritual real quick to start doing this. Uh, hold on. What is that, Sam? Let me see. Oh, Henry Henry. Uh, Henry asked a good question. When the aura is crystallized, does it stay that way through multiple lifetimes or does it go away after rebirth? Like, does progress in the great work carry through? It absolutely does carry through. It carries through in different ways, depending on what level or what stage of the work you are at. You know, you will develop certain 
I guess you would say character traits, qualities, characteristics. You know, it's not like you're you're necessarily going to remember who you were in every lifetime uh, until you reach a very very high level of development. But you will maintain certain lessons that you've learned that have been hard earned. You will know certain things when you come into this world. You know, like. You ever, you know, you have people in this world that they just know automatically when they come in here, they don't, you know, why do some kids lie and steal and have to be taught not to do that and disciplined not to do that? While some kids, it's just kind of like an ingrained thing. They know you don't do that kind of stuff you know, or, or, you know, whatever it is, whatever lessons that people are learning. Um, so yes, you do bring things through, but also, uh, Um, oh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure how to say this name. Uh, A-R-H-A, Arha Third Vessel, says, How can we learn to read the Bible in terms of its true meanings as a magical text? Can you refer us to any helpful sources? No, really, there aren't, there aren't any uh, very many sources that are going to help you decipher this. This is like the point of attaining the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel which some also say that's what Harpocrates is, that God of silence, uh, that they, that's just another name for the HGA. You know, silence is secrecy. It reveals to you secret things, just like the HGA does. It, it allows you, that connection is what allows you to understand what this stuff is. The only thing that will help you decipher the Bible is reading the Bible. The more you read it and the more you learn to decipher something, the more and more of it that begins to unlock itself. Uh, Lydia says, which version of the Bible do you recommend? I would say there's one called the Companion Bible, and I don't have a copy right now. I just moved off and left it in my old place. I couldn't carry it, but the Companion Bible has like a huge concordance in it that explains like the meanings of certain words, the meanings of names in the Bible, all of that sort of stuff. Because that's another thing um, you have to, to learn is, is like what, the, what these names mean. You know, for, I'll give you one example. You know, when you're talking about Cain, the guy who kills Abel, it says that God sends him out into the land of Nod. Well, Nod means wandering. So what it means is he is sent out into the world to wander pointlessly, aimlessly, until he begins to build a city. They say that Cain, the man who killed his brother, is the person who created the very first city on earth. Um, let me see. Oh, okay, here we go. Michael, thank you for reminding me. Michael Tanner says, so how do you break through Leviathan? Uh, basically, it is a step-by-step -step process, but I'm going to tell you the next step in the process. For those of you that have been doing the lesser invoking and the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, you're going to pick up with that. That's step one. Step two, remember how I said in the first step, you're going to work with the elemental energies. Step two, you're going to work with the planetary energies. Here's where you're going to have to do some homework and some research. Start studying the tree of life. 
I don't mean all the, the, the concepts. And you can also find it in here. This is Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide. Um, you will find them all in here, listed in here. I can't remember what page it is off the top of my head. But the only thing you want to know with the Tree of Life is uh, what the Archangel is that corresponds to each sphere. So, for example, uh, on the Tree of Life, Sandalphon is Malkuth. Uh, next sphere up, you've got Yasad, which is Gabriel. Next one up is Hod, which is Mikael. Next one is Netzach, which is Haniel. Next one is Tipareth, which is Raphael. Next one is Geburah, which is Kamael. Next one is Hesed, which is Zadkiel. Next one is Bana, which is Zafkiel. Next one is Hakma, which is Raziel. Next one is uh, Kether, which is Metatron. You're going to start invoking all of those angels uh, the same way you're doing the lesser banishing or the lesser invoking ritual, the pentagram. You know how you've got these four angels around you in, in the four directions? You're going to start, remember in this book, I, I said add two more angels. You're going to do Metatron above you and Sandalphon below you so that you're encased in a sphere of angels. Raphael, Gabriel, Mikael, Uriel, Metatron, Sandalphon, so that you're inside this ball of angels. You're going to add the other eight angels, the other eight archangels from the tree of life to this process. And you're going to do them starting in the corners. Like since you've got the four archangels of the elements in all four directions, over here in the uh, northeastern corner between Uriel and Raphael, you're going to invoke uh, Gabriel of Yassad in purple robes. And then you're going to go over here to the southeastern corner between Mikael and uh, Raphael. And you're going to invoke uh, the Mikael of Had wearing orange robes. And then you're going to direct your attention back to this corner over here, which will be the uh, southwestern corner. And you're going to invoke Haniel of Netzach there. And then you're going to direct your attention over here to the uh, north northwestern corner, and you're going to invoke Raphael of Hod over there. So you're surrounded now by eight angels. You've got eight angels around you, one above you and one below you, but you've got more angels. Now, what I do when I'm invoking these angels in this particular pattern, think of it as uh, Daryl Calhoun. He says, is this ritual in the angels book? Yes. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, Think of it as what you're doing when you're trying to reach Leviathan, when you're trying to reach the abyss, is you're trying to ascend. You're trying to go up the tree. You're in Malkuth. Malkuth is the bottom sphere. Malkuth is the realm of earth. You're trying to go from earth up to Kether. So when you're invoking these angels, invoke them in the, in the path that you would move up the tree. Like from Malkuth, the 10th sphere, What's the one above that? What's number nine? Number nine is Yasad. So begin by invoking the Archangel of Yasad there in that corner. 
Well, from Yasad, what's what's the eighth sphere? That would be Hod. So what's the archangel of Hod? Mikael. You invoke Mikael in the next corner. From Hod, what's the seventh sphere? What goes from eight to seven? Seven is Netzach. The archangel of Netzach is Haniel. You invoke Haniel there. You're just moving up the tree. That's all you're doing. You're following the path up the tree. That's the order you do it in. You can, and now I deviated from that when I got to, um, when I got to the stage of uh, the fifth sphere. The fifth sphere is Geborah. The archangel of Geborah is Kamael, who is the archangel of war. I put Kamael below me, and I also put Zafkiel, who is the archangel of binding and banishing and karma and destruction. I put her below me also. The reason that I put Kamael and Zafkiel below me is because they say that there was a universe that existed before this one, but it disintegrated. Whenever the divine energy of Kether came down, into the vessel of this world, it was not able to contain it and it shattered. This universe was built upon the shattered pieces of the last one, upon those broken parts. Those broken parts are called clip-off. In magic, clip-off are something even worse than the concept of demons in Christianity. They are these things that are malevolent and not particularly fond of us. They exist in the level of reality beneath ours on a much denser level than ours. So I put Kamael and Zafkiel below me to symbolically uh, protect me, defend me from Klipoth. Above me, next to Metatron, I put Raziel, the Archangel of Wisdom, the Archangel of Hakma and uh, Zadkiel, the archangel of Hesed, prosperity, abundance. The reason I put those two above me is because those are energies that I wanted showering down on me throughout my life. Um, let me see what you guys are asking real quick. Where is this added? Is this something we do during the lesser invoking ritual of the pentagram or when we're doing the evocation of the archangels? Is this a separate ritual? No, this is not a separate ritual. You do this while you're, this is part of the lesser invoking ritual of the pentagram. You start off invoking those four archangels of the elements, and then you progress to the other angels on the tree of life. You do it just like you're doing the lesser invoking. You just don't stop. Don't stop when you've done those four angels. Keep going until you've done all of them all the angels from the tree of life. This is all one ritual, all of this, all of magic. What you're doing is building with every level of development, you're building on the last level of development. What you are working towards is this. This is you standing in the center of your circle these are 72 angels of the Shem operation that you're invoking all around you. You've gone a long way. By the time you've, by the time you've gone, you know, by the time you've done four, you're progressing from four to here. 
someone says, how does this fit with the hexagram rituals? Ethan Finley says, how does this fit with the hexagram rituals? The hexagram rituals are a completely different ritual. When you're doing this, you're in, you're using, when you're doing pentagram rituals, you're working with the elements. When you're doing hexagram rituals, you're usually working with the planetary energies. This is a combination of both. You're working with planetary energies, but you're doing it with the pentagram rituals. Okay, guys. Um, yeah, it is. Somebody's asking about the name again. Uh, Angels and Archangels, a magician's guide. And that's exactly right. Vegas Vamp says, is the Leviathan cross with the infinity symbol because the Ouroboros is constantly sending us back here until we can stop it? That is exactly right. The Ouroboros, people usually say it represents infinity because you will be sent back to this realm infinite times until you finally transcend it. There is no limit. There is no end. You will just keep circling back again and again and again. Yes. Let me see what you guys are talking about. I better stop for now. We're already well over an hour. We're creeping up on an hour and 15 minutes. Um, but we will, let me see, the map of the aura. Could you post a picture of it on your Patreon? Which map, Lydia? Um, you said, could I post a map of the aura? Which one? Are, which one do you mean? Which picture? Yes, Henry, you can do it during Banishing 2. Henry says, do you only do the extra Archangels during Invoking, or can you do it during Banishing 2? Yes, you can do it during Banishing and Invoking. Aristotle's Universe? Is that what you guys are talking about? Let me see. Hold on one second. Is this the one you're talking about? Is this the picture? The cosmology map? Lydia says yes. Okay, yes, I, I will post this. I'll put this up. Um, absolutely, yes. As a matter of fact, I'll put all of these up. Uh, what is the other version you use called? I'm not sure, guys. I'm not sure. Okay. Very good. I will post these pictures, all the ones we were using today. I will post them up so that you guys have access to them and can use them. Um, and I will talk to you guys later. Again, uh, thank you so much for bearing with me through all of this. I hope you got something out of it. And I hope I wasn't just rambling incoherently that I was able to explain this in a way that, um, that you can understand. Very good. Just looking at what you guys are saying. Excellent. Very good. All right. I will talk to you guys in a couple of days. Uh, take care and I will see you soon. Bye bye.